You know, sometimes I feel guilty when our when I feel good that our study's over. Does that make sense? Our study's over, I feel good, and that makes me feel guilty. Am I the only one who did like a little fist pump when I answered the last question, the study guide? It's like, yes, right? You know, well, we know that God's word brings us freedom, right? It says, truth shall, shall set you free. And I'll have to tell you, I was set free by Ecclesiastes 7, 8. Because Ecclesiastes 7, 8 says, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. So I could feel good about coming to the end of our studies. I don't have to feel guilty about it, right? Last week, we started chapter 13. In fact, Lorraine started it. And she did the first eight verses. They made me think, how fair is that? She had 45 minutes to teach on eight verses. That's like five minutes and 38 seconds per verse. Okay. And then I have 21 verses in 45 minutes. That's only like two minutes and eight seconds per verse. So I thought, wow, that's not really fair. But like uh, somebody told me once, there's only one fair and it's in Pomona. That's what we used to tell kids. Right? It's not fair. It's only one fair. But um, truly, though, truly, though, the end of a, of a Bible study, at least, is only, is, it's only good if we walk away and if we could say that we've been changed, right? We're different than what we started with. James chapter 1 and verse 22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And Jesus said the same thing, basically, the same idea in, in Matthew chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 24 and 25, when Jesus said, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. And that's what we want to be, ladies. We want to be founded on the word of God. We want to be founded on that rock. And as we wrap up our study here, we're going to have this chance to put into practice everything that the Holy Spirit has been showing us. And if we hadn't learned enough already, um, we just have some more tonight. I mean, I know God is faithful and he's going to even add a little bit more to everything we've already learned. And you know, the title of our study tonight is Final Exhortations. And an exhortation is an address or a communication that's emphatically urging someone to do something. So another synonym for an exhortation would be an encouragement. It could be a persuasion. It could be a warning, um, an admonition. Those are all synonyms for the word exhortation. Verse 22 of our chapter has the final, final exhortation. And that final, final exhortation is an exhortation to listen to the other exhortations. It is. It is. I'm not making this up. He says, I appeal to you. I call on you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation I've written to you. So at the end of all the exhortations, he's going to encourage them to pay attention to all those exhortations. And I, I was chuckling as I was preparing this. You know, chapter 13 is filled with what some commentators have called, and I'm quoting here, a series of apparently disconnected exhortations and other incidental teaching. Chapter 13, a series of apparently disconnected exhortations and other incidental teachings. And I laughed. I thought, and I'm supposed to bring this all together and it's all supposed to make sense. When these Bible scholars call it a series of apparently disconnected exhortations and other incidental teachings. But uh, maybe you felt like that as you read through the chapter, because it's a lot of good information, but it almost seems like random information, you know, as you're kind of going through here. So I did come up with an organization that makes sense to me. I'm sorry if it doesn't make sense to you, but it makes sense to me. And so this is how we're going to do it tonight. We're going to focus on verses 9 through 19. And verses 9 through 19, I've kind of organized them into four main exhortations. I'm sorry, it couldn't be three points. It's going to be four points. So four main exhortations. And then we're also going to read through the benediction, which is found in verses 20 and 21, because it's just very beautiful. So the four main exhortations that we're going to kind of do, 
So the first one is stay true to God's word. That's going to be in verse 9. Stay true to God's word. Verses 10 through 15 are stay true to Jesus. Stay true to Jesus. Verses 16 and 17 are stay true to your family in Christ. And then verses 18 and 19, stay true to prayer. So stay true to God's word, stay true to Jesus, stay true to your family in Christ, and stay true to prayer. So ladies, take a deep breath because the finish line is with insight here, right? So just a reminder, as we begin here in verse 9, we talk about staying, stay true to God's word. These Hebrew Christians, the ones who this book was written to, again, they were Christians who were thinking of leaving Christianity and reverting back to Judaism. To, um, and so in order for them to stay firm in their faith, they, needed, they would need to stay true to God's word. That's what's going to keep them firm in their faith. So verse 9 says, Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it's good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who've been occupied with them. And so here in this verse, we have both an exhortation and the reason why we should follow it. And it was written in a negative form. It says, um, it says, do not be carried away with these various strange doctrines. But for me, it's easier to look at what I'm supposed to do. So instead of like the, the negative, so I kind of put it, that's why I called it stay true to God's word. Okay, just like to be on, to keep on that, that positive spin here. That word to um, be carried away means to be taken off the true safe course. Don't be carried off of that true safe course. And they were already warned about this back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. So he had already told them, be careful that you don't drift away. Here he's saying, don't be carried away with these, these doctrines. Don't be taken off course. And we can't be 100% sure exactly what these various and strange doctrines are that are mentioned. But we do have a big hint later in the verse where we have that phrase, not with foods. So it says, it's good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods. So it seems like these doctrines that they were dealing with had to do with maybe dietary laws. And you know, the Jews had a lot of different um, dietary laws that they would follow. And while they serve some purpose physically, those dietary laws that, that God had placed for his people kept them maybe from getting certain diseases, let's say, in the foods. But the fact that they would eat or not eat certain foods, it does nothing for us spiritually. So I'm not saying that we can't um, do things to be healthy, but if our motive is a spiritual motive, then that's where we're getting off track here. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 14, 17, that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And back in Hebrews 7, 19, they were told that the law made nothing perfect. So if they're planning on going back to this Jewish law in order to help them spiritually by following these dietary laws, they were going to be sorely disappointed. And this same exhortation holds true for us today because it's going to be grace that strengthens our heart. It's not going to be the adherence to all these different rules, be they dietary rules or some other kind of legalistic rules. Those aren't going to strengthen our heart. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 say, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So this whole idea about following um, these various rules, it almost would give a person a, a reason to boast. Like, I'm doing these things, so I'm more spiritual than you, or I'm going to be holier than, than I was before. But we know that we're saved through the grace of God. And that's why this verse says, it's good that our heart be established by grace. That's what's going to keep us firm in our walk with the Lord. And we have to remember, ladies, there's always going to be some new doctrine, some new teaching, some new book, <clears throat> excuse me, that's going to come out. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he wrote, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, 
giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And then he goes on to explain how this happens. And he says, because they're speaking lies and hypocrisy, they have their conscience seared with a hot iron. They forbid to marry. And he says, people also are commanding to abstain from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. In other words, these, it's not surprising that these doctrines have been around. They're going to continue coming around, whether it has to do with foods or not. There's going to be these new teachings that occasionally pop up. Paul in, in Colossians 2, 8 wrote, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men and according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. So we know that no other foundation can be laid except for what was laid um, in Jesus Christ. And whenever we go after these doctrines, whenever you're tempted to follow like this, this new book or this new fad or this new teaching that you hear, when people do that, what it does is it shows that they are not satisfied with Jesus. Because if I were satisfied with Jesus, I wouldn't be chasing after all this other stuff. One commentator summed it up this way. He said, no outward observance can sustain the inner life. It's by grace alone. Nothing we can do on the outside is going to sustain us internally because it's only going to be God's grace that's going to strengthen our walk with him. And so the exhortation was, don't be, <clears throat> excuse me, don't be carried away with various and strange doctrines. And how do we avoid all of this? By staying true to God's word. Now, earlier in the book, the, the author of the book, he chided them about being immature. Remember, he, back in chapter 5, he wanted to talk to them about Melchizedek. And he said, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. The fact that they were allowing themselves to be enticed with all these various doctrines, that's just more proof that they were immature. And the way for us to avoid this, as I said, is to stay true to God's word. Earlier in the book, the author of the book of Hebrews already talked to them about the importance of God's word. Hebrews 4.12, a verse that, that many of us are familiar with, says, For the word of God is, is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and the joints of marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. God's word will discern what's in our heart. This past weekend at the retreat, we were encouraged to spend time in God's word, in God's words, God's word daily. And in Psalm 119, that whole psalm is dedicated to God's word. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11 say, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart, I have sought you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So as we spend time in God's word, that's going to help us to know the truth. And that's going to protect us from being carried away by all these strange doctrines. So the first exhortation to them and to us tonight is to stay true to God's word. Secondly, in verses 10 through 15, we're going to look at how we need to stay true to Jesus. Stay true to God's word and stay true to Jesus. And we're going to divide this into two parts. First of all, looking at verses 10 to 14. We need to stay true to Jesus, and that means don't be ashamed to follow him. Don't be ashamed to follow him. Verses 10 to 14 say, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought to the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city but we seek the one to come. 
Donna kind of mentioned when she was dismissing us about the connection of the book of Hebrews with the Old Testament. And I hope a lot of you learned a lot about the Old Testament um, in our study of the book of Hebrews. We learned a lot about the sacrificial system. We learned a lot about the priesthood and how all of these things are fulfilled in Christ. And here in, in, this, in these verses, the reference in these verses is going to be to the, the Day of Atonement. And in the Jewish sacrificial system, system on that Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the blood and carry it into the Holy of Holies, but the bodies of the animals that were sacrificed, the carcasses, were destroyed or destroyed or burned outside of the camp. That is, the body played no part in the offering for sin. The blood, yes, but the body was irrelevant in a sense. It was just tossed aside and it was burned. And so then the writer makes a comparison to the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's not an exact parallel, but we can see the comparison here. Because he tells the Hebrew, Hebrew Christians and us that it's both the shedding of blood and it's also the suffering of the body. Both of these things for us as Christians form a part of our understanding of the work of Christ on the cross. It wasn't just the shedding of his blood, but it was the suffering that, that he went through there. And Jesus atoned for sin outside of the camp. This phrase comes up a couple times, and it doesn't only refer to, to Jerusalem, but it refers to the Jewish nation, nation as a whole. In other words, the means for atonement for sin is no longer found in Judaism. When he's telling them that, that Jesus, what he was, um, he atoned for sin, that he was crucified, we know outside of the city of Jerusalem, outside the camp, apart from Judaism. In verse 13, it's that final appeal to the believers, um, the readers here, to completely identify themselves with Christ. He says, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. It's that final appeal. Come on, let's, you know, uh, associate yourself with Christ. When it says outside the camp, the idea, make a clear, make a complete break with Judaism. That's what he was encouraging them to do because they'd been faltering, right? Kind of going back and forth. He says, go outside the camp. Okay, that was a place where when, when you were outside the camp, you were basically unclean in the eyes of the, of the Jews. But I was like that break. Let's, let's go out there. In the Amplified Bible, it says, um, when we do that, it says, okay, it says, com- in our verse, it says to bear his reproach. In the Amplified Bible, it explains it. It says, bearing the contempt and the abuse and the shame with him. So the exhortation to go outside the camp, if they were to do that, they were going to associate themselves with Christ and be reproached with him, which is probably the reason why they didn't want to do it. You know, who wants to suffer persecution suffer, and, and all those things? And as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, you know, for me, it's kind of been easy to think, well, gosh, how could they think about turning back to Judaism? How could they dare go back to that? But you think about it, are any of us really in a hurry to suffer for Jesus? I mean, I know I'm not. And so they even had the Old Testament saints as their example. In Hebrews chapter 11, right, we have all of these, this cloud of witnesses. In Hebrews eleven twenty six, for example, Moses was held up as someone who esteemed the reproach of Christ greater than the riches and the treasures of Egypt. And that may not be a big deal for us, but Moses was a big deal to them. And so he's saying, look at Moses. He was an example. He chose to associate himself with Christ. And as believers, we need to associate with Christ. Paul talks about this as he prayed in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul wrote um, in his prayer that I may know him, that I may know Jesus, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And I confess to you, I have never prayed to know the sufferings of our Lord. I've prayed for his power, right? Like he says, know the power of his resurrection. I'm like, yes, hallelujah, right? And the fellowship of his sufferings? Nope, right? Nope. But that's the exhortation here. Let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Don't be ashamed to associate yourself with Jesus. 
And he says here in verse 14, we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. And so when they went forth out of Jerusalem, when they went forth out of the camp to identify with Jesus, they were cutting their ties, as we said, with Judaism. But it's not as if they were left without a city, right? Because it says go outside the camp, outside the city. They're waiting for the city to come, the one to come. It was a very specific city that we as believers are waiting for. And it was mentioned earlier in Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham waited for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The Old Testament saints, again, in Hebrews chapter 16, it says they desired a better, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So this city, in verse 14, that they're associated with, um, that they're called to, is also associated with a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There are just so many vivid images here at the end of the book of Hebrews. In chapter 12, um, we read, Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. In other words, one of the ways that we serve him is to willingly follow him outside of that camp. Boldly identify ourselves with Christ. The exhortation here is to stay true to Jesus. Don't be ashamed to follow him. The second part of the stay true to Jesus is don't be ashamed to follow him and remember to worship him. In verse 15. Therefore, verse 15, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. We offer our sacrifices through him. That is through Jesus, not a priestly system. You know, we think about how as Christians, like there is no more like sacrifices like they did in the Old Testament. But here we're off, we're called to offer a sacrifice, but it's not through the, the um, priestly system. It's a sacrifice of praise. It says continually offer the sacrifice of praise. That word continually means constantly at all times we're to be offering that sacrifice of praise. And we're told very specific what it is that we're supposed to offer. Like I said, it's that sacrifice of praise. And we're even given specific details. It says that he wants us to give thanks to his name. So very, very specific offering the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. In the Amplified Bible, it says, of the fruit of our lips that thankfully acknowledge and confess and glorify his name. So that's the idea. We need to acknowledge his name, confess and glorify his name. Thanksgiving gratitude are two of the most important characteristics of us as Christians, right? In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul writes, In everything gives thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We need to be thankful. We need to have that attitude of gratitude, as they say. Now, this sacrifice of praise in verse 15 is described as fruit. One commentator wrote, what proceeds from the lips is regarded as fruit, and that reveals the character of the source in the same way that the fruit of a tree reveals the nature of the tree. In other words, what comes out of our lips, ladies, reveals what's inside of our heart. What comes out of our lips reveals what's inside of our heart. And that's what Jesus said back in, in Matthew twelve thirty four: out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we're invited here to offer a sacrifice of praise that the fruit of, that comes from our lips would be, would be praise to God, acknowledging the name of Christ, confessing and glorifying his name. And so I got to thinking, okay, I'm supposed to thankfully acknowledge and confess and glorify his name. We've learned a lot about Jesus in our study here in the book of Hebrews. And so what are some of the reasons we have to praise the name of Jesus? So I just kind of went back through the book of Hebrews to think, what are some of the reasons we have if we're supposed to offer the sacrifice of praise to him? So buckle up. Here we go. 
he's better than the angels, right? In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 4, he's, we praise him because he's better than the angels. And in fact, it says that, that all of the angels actually worship him. So we praise him because he's better than the angels. And he's also better than Moses in Hebrews 3.3. 3. And like I said, that may not matter to us, but he's talking to Hebrew Christians and being better than Moses was a huge deal. We also praise him because he is our great high priest who has passed through the heavens, right? In Hebrews chapter 4, it says in Hebrews 4.15, we do, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. So as our high priest, he didn't offer an animal sacrifice, but we know he's our high priest who offered himself. So these are all reasons that we can praise him. He's also the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him in Hebrews 5.9. Another reason to praise him. He's our forerunner. He entered behind the veil in heaven to open the way for us so that one day you and I can be there with him. He's also our great high priest who with his own blood entered that most holy place once and for all. He doesn't go back year after year. Once and for all, he entered there to obtain that eternal salvation for us. It wasn't with the blood of goats and, and lambs, but in his own blood. Another reason we can praise him. He's also the mediator of, a, of the new covenant. That's in Hebrews 9.15. Again, we can praise him for that. In Hebrews 10, verses 12 to 14, it says, After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. We can praise him. He's there right now, ladies, interceding for us. He's at the right hand of the Father. That's a great reason for us to be, to be thankful for him. Hebrews 12.2 says he's the author and the finisher of our faith. Right? He's going to bring that faith to completion. And so he, and he, for joy, he endured the cross set before him. He had despised all the shame. These are more reasons that we could praise him. And I know I missed a lot more, but you get the whole point here. There's just a whole, whole, whole lot of reasons right, that we can thankfully acknowledge and confess and glorify his name. And so that's why the writer here of the book of Hebrews exhorts them to stay true to Jesus Stay true to the word, stay true to Jesus, and stay true to Jesus by not being ashamed of him and also by remembering to praise him. Another exhortation we see is in verses 16 and 17. Stay true to your family in Christ. Stay true to your family in Christ. And verse 16 and 17, the first part in verse 16 says how, do, how we do that. And the way that we do that is by doing good and sharing. Verse 16 says, but do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. You know, as you do these Bible studies, you learn all sorts of cool things. And I learned a brand new word. See if I could pronounce it correctly. Beneficence. Beneficence. Beneficence is the doing of good. Beneficence. Because it says here, do not forget to do good. So I thought that was going to be a verb, right? No, it's a noun. (laughs) Okay, the act of doing good is called beneficence. All right, write that down. (laughs) Beneficence. And... Um, verse 15, what we just looked at, talked about the sacrifice of praise as being the fruit of our lips. And here in verse 16, it speaks of our actions as another type of sacrifice. It says, don't forget to do good and share for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And as believers, we know that our words are important, but our actions are also very, very important to the Lord. James chapter two, verses 15 and 16 say, if a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Again, the words, be, you know, God bless you, sister. God bless you, brother. Be warm. Hope you're not too hungry tonight, but we don't reach out and do something. So again, the connection between our words and our actions. 
The author had already recognized their beneficence in Hebrews chapter 10 verse, excuse me, Hebrews 6:10, when he wrote to them saying, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you've shown toward his name and that you have ministered and you do minister. They had been doing good deeds. Those were mentioned even last week. Lorraine mentioned in chapter 13, um, verse two, he mentioned their, she mentioned their hospitality and also in chapter 13, verse three, how they ministered to those in prison. So they had been doing good deeds. And as believers, we need to do good and we need to be benevolent to everyone. But Galatians 6.10 reminds us that we have a special duty as Christians. We're supposed to be nice to everyone and help everyone, but we have a special duty to help our family in Christ. Galatians 6.10 says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So this exhortation here says, but do not forget. So that injunction, do not forget, reminds us all of just how easy it is to forget to actually do good. I mean, I think you'll agree with me. It's way easier to sing a praise song than to go and actually do something for someone. Because it's going to cost me money. It's going to cost me time. It's going to be inconvenient. Right? So they're both sacrifices in the eyes of the Lord. Sacrifice of praise or the sacrifice of when we do reach out and do good for those around us. He says, do not forget to do good and to share. And the word share here is actually that word koinonia, which can, in some other places is translated as fellowship. And here it has that idea of distributing and contributing things to the needy. So it speaks of that fellowship that we have and that we share with one another when we do good for each other. We share in that koinonia, in that fellowship. So this exhortation is to do good and it's to share. And the result is for with such sacrifices... God is well pleased. And ladies, isn't that our goal to please our heavenly father? It tells us right here. We always like, Lord, you know, how can I please you? It says right here, do good and to share for with such sacrifices. He's well pleased. And we know that Jesus is our example of this because he says in John eight twenty nine, I always do those things that please the father. And all of us, I know without doubt one desire, one day we all desire to hear him say what? Well done good and faithful servant, right? Enter into the joy of your Lord. We want to do those things that are pleasing to our father. So in addition to doing good and sharing, another part of staying true to your family of Christ is found in verse 17. And verse 17 says, obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account and let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. So the exhortation is to do good and share. Right? We want to stay true to our family in Christ. We do that by doing good and sharing, and we do that by obeying those who rule over us and being submissive to them. Now, this whole idea, the word obey here, there's many different words in the scripture for obey. This particular word is closely related to the word of trust. And it's interesting because the idea here of obey, it's not obedience which comes by submission to authority. It's not like we're obeying just because. Like they're over us. I'm going to obey because the idea here of obeying, it's a result from being persuaded. In other words, we're persuaded by those who are rule over us. We're persuaded. We trust them. We trust the example they've given us. We've seen their teaching. We've seen their life. So we trust them. And so the idea of obeying, it says, obey those who rule over you. This obedience is linked to the trust that we have to them. And that trust has been developed over the years as we've seen their lives and we've heard them teach the word. So like I said, it's not that submission just like because they're over us by authority, but because of that trust, that persuasion that we have, that they truly are, are watching out for us. The idea of submitting here means in reference to everything that's in line with scripture. And we know that it's not for those 
leaders who would be overbearing or who would be authoritative and try to like run your life. That's not what it is here. But it's only in accordance with what the scripture says. And it says that we should obey them and be submissive for several different reasons. The first one is that they watch out for your soul. And the Amplified Scripture says they're constantly keeping watch over your souls and guarding your spiritual welfare. This idea that they watch out for your soul, the word watch means actually to be sleepless. So it indicates how loving and faithfully they care and, and, and um, they care for us. So we, we are obedient and we submit to them because they watch out for our souls. They care for us. And they do it also because they must give an account. Now we know in Romans fourteen twelve it says, so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. I know that you are all aware of this, that one day you're going to give account to God for your life. I'm going to give account to God for my life. And that's a very sobering thought that I have to give an account for myself. But our church leaders have to do that. Plus they have to give an account for each of us who've been under their authority. So if you, if, if it's a sobering thought to me that, wow, I have to stand before God and account for my life, they have to account for their own life and also the ministry that God has given to them. And so as a result of that, we're encouraged to do our part. We're encouraged to, to obey and to be submissive so they can do their part and they can do their part with joy and not with grief, right? It says they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. The word grief here means sighing and groaning, sighing. So we want them to give an account before the Lord with joy. We don't want them to do it with sighing and groaning. No, we don't want to make Xavier and Mario and Tony and Henry and Fernando and Diego. We don't want to make them sigh and groan, right? We want to, to, um, them to watch over us and, and give an account with that, with that joy, right? And it's given, it, it's explained here why. Because if we cause our spiritual leaders grief by failing to obey and, and submit to them, it's not profitable for us either. It's not profitable for us either, right? It says it would be unprofitable to you. So our obedience and our submission brings joy to our church leadership. Um, in Third John verse 4, John wrote, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. So as we said, when we walk um, in obedience to, to God and to our leadership, it brings them joy. And Paul even said to the believers in Philippian, in, in Philippi, he called them his joy and his crown. So the, I think this whole idea of about um, obeying our rule, the, those who rule over us and being submissive, I think this whole idea is summed up really well in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 12 and 13, where Paul writes, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. That's what God desires that we do. So we need, he encourages us here tonight to stay true to our family in Christ. Ladies, we want to be true to our family in Christ. And we do that by doing good and sharing. And we do that by obeying our spiritual leaders. So three exhortations down and one to go. So far, we've had, right? Stay true to the word. Stay true to Jesus. Stay true to our family in Christ. And now, stay true, ladies, to prayer. Stay true to prayer. Up to this point, the author in the book of Hebrews, he's poured his heart out to them. He's poured his heart out to them. And now he simply asked them to pray for him. In verse 18, it says, pray for us, for we are confident we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. So like I said, last but not least, right, the different, the different exhortations here. And the exhortation where it says, pray for us, really means keep praying for us. He's not insinuating that they haven't been like, come on, you guys, pray for us. He's not saying that. He's, he's like, keep praying for us. Keep praying for us. And he gives us two reasons for it. First of all, because of their godly character. 
He says, pray for us, for we're confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. They have, he has a godly character. And the Amplified Bible kind of describes what this, God, what this good conscience looks like. That is, in the, in the New King James, it says, we have a good conscience. And the Amplified Bible, it kind of fleshes it out. It says, we have a good, clear conscience that we want to walk uprightly and live a noble life, acting honorably and in complete honesty in all things. At times, he was very, very frank with them. The, the writer in the, the book of Hebrews here, he's been very, very frank with them. But even when he's had to rebuke them or kind of he was chiding with them earlier and kind of coming down on them, he always spoke the word in love and in compassion. And the evidence of all this is that now he asked them to pray on his behalf. He's poured his heart out to them. He's been tough on them sometimes, but he says, you know, and now he asked them to pray for him. And his request is a very simple one there in verse 19. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you sooner. He wants to be restored to them. This shows his faith that in the power of prayer. But it's interesting. It also shows his love for them because he longs to be united with them again in person. So it shows us that he was with them at one time. He's not writing to them just like, you know, remotely. At one time he was there. He says he wants to be restored to them sooner. He wants to come back to them again. So we see his love, his concern for them. This whole idea of prayer has already been mentioned several times in the book of Hebrews. A very, a very important verse that a lot of us know in Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's already told them that they can go boldly before the throne of grace. And now he's asking them, exercise this, exercise this boldness on my behalf. Go before the throne of grace on my behalf. In Hebrews 10, 22, he also, um, that chapter kind of culminates after this whole section in chapter nine about Christ as our, as our great high priest and our, how we can enter into the holiest of holies because Christ is our forerunner. And in Hebrews 10, 22, it says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure blood. We can draw, tr- draw, with, draw near with a f- true heart and full assurance of faith. And that's because the death of Jesus Christ, he's opened the way into that holy place. He's opened the way in that most holy place through his blood. And so that allows us as believers to draw near to God in full assurance. We can do that knowing that he will hear the cries of our heart. So the request here for prayer is with confidence. He doesn't say just, he knows that they can go boldly. He knows they can go in a full assurance of faith. And he asked them to pray because he truly, truly believes that God will move on those prayers and he will reunite, reunite them soon with, um, together again. Makes me think that, it reminds me, and for us to remember that we too can have confidence that God hears our prayers, ladies. We can have constant confidence that he hears our prayers. And it's not because of who we are, but it's because of our, the work of Jesus Christ, that great high priest of ours who opened the way. We can have that full assurance of faith. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. So we can pray with confidence, just as he asked them to pray with confidence. So four exhortations here tonight. Staying true to God's word, staying true to Jesus, staying true to, the, to our family in Christ, and staying true to prayer. And after he does this and he gives them these exhortations, what's so beautiful is in the author of the book of Hebrews begins to pray for them. And he does this in his benediction in verses 20 and 21. Just a beautiful passage where he just asks for prayer and now he is going to pray for them. So verse 20 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, 
make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. May the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep. He is the God of peace. He is that great shepherd of the sheep. And he raised Jesus from the dead. It says here that the blood of Christ has given us an everlasting covenant. Remember, we've been reading about how the priest had to go year by year to sacrifice that day of atonement. But the blood of Christ has given to us, ladies, an everlasting covenant. And what was his prayer for them here in these last verses? That God would make them complete in every good work. He asked them to pray for him. And now he says that God, he prays that God would make them complete. And he tells them why. So that they might do God's will. So it's not for us. He prays for them that God would make them complete to do his will. And to work what is well-pleasing in his sight. And how does this happen? He says, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What a beautiful way for him to wrap up, for him to wrap up um, his teaching with them and that benediction. And what a wonderful way for us to like wrap up the book of Hebrews. So we've crossed the finish line. But the after party doesn't happen until next week. Right? That's the potluck. The after party is next week. But we finished, right? And so now, now it's time for that fist pump, right? Yes. But I really hope, ladies, truly that whether you've joined us just this last week or a couple weeks or you've been here from the beginning, right, for all the studies, I hope that your spiritual mus- muscles have had a really invigorating workout for these past, these past eight months. And there's so much, so much for us to remember. It makes me think about drinking from a fire hose. It's like, it's like impossible, right, just to take it all in sometimes. But I think we will all do well if we take these these four exhortations from tonight and just keep them tucked in your heart, ladies, as you walk out of here. It's a lot of stuff. And through the next weeks and months and every time you open the book of Hebrews, God's going to bring things to your remembrance. But for tonight, just tuck these things in your heart. We need to remember to stay true to God's word. We need to stay true to his word and not be carried away by strange doctrines. And we need to let our heart be established by God's grace. Don't try to establish it yourself through all your works and your actions, but God's grace is what's going to keep us strong. We also need to remember to stay true to Jesus. And that means don't be ashamed of him. Don't be ashamed of him and remember to worship him. That's how we stay true to him. And stay true to your family in Christ. I mean, look around you. You've made some good friends this year, hopefully. some Your family has grown, right? Our family in Christ here. Stay true to this family in Christ. Do good and share with one another. And remember to obey those who rule over us and to be submissive to them. And we need to stay true to prayer, ladies. We have to be confident as we pray because prayer is going to work. It's an amazing book. It's an amazing book. And I hope that you realize, along with with the people who received this letter at the beginning, that truly, truly, truly Jesus is so, so, so much better than anything else that we could have.